Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We're joined again this week by John Pantakitis. John is a partner at Twin Focus Capital and serves as a chief investment officer and general counsel. He also leads the firm's research efforts to develop new and creative asset allocation policies, oversee due diligence for manager search and selection, and writes up thought leadership commentary on global macroeconomic topics. He's especially active on behalf of offshore clients, developing strategies to overcome cross-border impediments, tax, legal, and regulatory challenges, as well as cultural sensitivities to maximize intergenerational wealth transfer and succession planning. Happy to have you back on the show again, John. Thank you for having me. The subject of today's episode is one Earl Simmons, better known as rap superstar DMX, which for the less hip-hop fluent among us stands for Darkman X. The Mount Vernon-born and Yonkers-bred X was the first artist to debut an album at number one five times in a row on the Billboard 200 charts. Overall, he sold over 74 million records worldwide. He also had a fairly lucrative side career as an actor, appearing in such films as Belly, Romeo Must Die, and Cradle to the Grave, to name a few. Now, that's not exactly the Godfather trilogy, but those movie names hold a special place in the hearts of many who were teenagers in the late 90s and early aughts. Sadly, DMX passed in April of 2021 after being hospitalized for a cocaine-induced heart attack. He was 50 years old. A flamboyant and famously pugnacious personality in life, it's sadly unsurprising that fighting, this time amongst his own family, resulted from his death. DMX died intestate and without any sort of documentation in place. Not a terribly shocking result for someone who died unexpectedly at a young age, nor for someone who was notorious for barking like a dog on his records and in everyday conversation. But hey, you can't always judge a book by its cover. What is shocking is the sheer potential size and breadth of his family, and how quickly things have escalated to being fairly ridiculous. You see, DMX, at latest count, left behind 15 children with 9 women. The products of his marriage to now ex-wife Tashera Simmons, his longtime fiancée Desiree Lindstrom, and a truly impressive array of extramarital affairs while living their rock star life to the fullest. And the kids still seem to be coming out of the woodwork. The latest one emerged mere months ago in October of 2021. Beyond his shocking collection of children, at least for someone who doesn't have their own show on TLC, the story got even stranger when the aforementioned Lidstrom, who had been engaged to DMX since 2019, petitioned the New York court to be declared his common-law wife, which would then give her precedence over his kids in terms of inheriting his estate under state intestacy laws. Unfortunately for Ms. Lidstrom, nobody told her that New York abolished common law marriage in the 1930s. So her request was totally dead on arrival, but A plus for creativity, I guess? While most practitioners likely won't have to deal with issues of common law marriage particularly frequently, if at all, 
what every single one will have to reckon with is managing their client's blended family. And make no mistake, DMX's family is one of the more complexly blended celebrity families we've ever seen. So, John, let's start from the beginning here. What exactly do we mean when we refer to a blended family? Well, usually what it means is when you have multiple spouses with kids from different spouses as well. And that's where planning ahead of time is all the more important, especially if you die with with being married at the same time, because that spouse has special types of rights. So whenever you have a blended family, you have a big balance sheet, you always want to make sure that you, you leave, you know, you strategize and you leave a long-term plan in place that's specific to how you, your, your assets are to be divided upon. Because like in this situation here where he has 15 kids, some of which he probably didn't even know, they, they come out of the woodwork and, you know, if you don't have a plan, they all have equal rights. Uh, and it makes it all the more difficult. So that's what we generally mean. It's a long-winded answer. When you have kids with different wives, uh, it becomes all the more important to have a plan in place. Mm-hmm. And when we say family, it, it's sort of a changing definition nowadays. Uh, I know the traditional sort of 1950s idea of the nuclear family, like man, wife, 1.5 children. Sure. That really hasn't ever been the case, but is even less so the case now. So this idea of family is really just your close relations, right? There can be your, your wives and your children, your mistresses, your if someone is homosexual or not, and they maybe are not married. Sure. There's a million, uh, even you know, adoption, things like that. There are millions of different ways that people can create these families that right. um, extend them out in importance and in breadth far beyond just, these are my kids. And the thing about a family like this is as it grows, and it becomes more and more complex, it feeds into himself. It sort of can grow exponentially, right? Where as you have more kids and more relations, then they have their kids and their relations. And these things can spider web out and create a truly sort of complex web of relations that sort of have a lot of people involved with each other through like very kind of tenuous connections sometimes. So when you see someone come in and they have, let's just start with the, the most basic, right? Kids with multiple partners. What does that say to you? What alarm bells go off in your head? And, and what do you think planning-wise for that person? There, it's a function of sitting down with the person, creating a, a very concise, comprehensive balance sheet and asking that person, okay, upon your death, how do you want these assets to, to, to flow? Do some kids have precedence over other kids? Do you want them all equal? How about if you die with a spouse, how do you want that treated? So it's it's a complicated situation, and especially if you have, let's say, kids with a second wife. Upon your death, do you want some assets to go to your kids first uh, from your first marriage? Because if that's the case, there's a, there's a tax due unless there's planning ahead of time. So there's both legal and uh, tax issues that have to be addressed when you have situations like that, kids from multiple, multiple uh, spouses. Yeah, the, the idea of divorce plays a, a sort of a big role here. You know, when we talk about divorce, a lot of times we think about it in terms of sort of a purely financial transaction um, where sort of someone is getting X amount, you know, they're splitting up assets and they're getting maybe child support or something like that. But that also creates sort of, there's a relationship aspect to it, of course, as well. And just because someone is your ex doesn't mean that you no longer care about them or that they're not part of your life or that you don't necessarily want them to get anything. I mean, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But how does sort of divorce work into this and complicate things? And what can sort of are ways we can sort of try to, I guess, insulate our married clients from from sort of future problems? Divorce can complicate things. The first thing I look for when there is a client who's been divorced is you look at the divorce uh, agreement. Uh, 
and you make sure everything you do is consistent with that divorce agreement because usually, especially with clients with you know very wealthy clients, uh, just because there's a divorce doesn't mean that, that your ex-spouse can't come back and try to get you for something else, especially if circumstances change. So what we like to do is any planning we do, we want to make sure that it's consistent with the divorce agreement and that to the extent possible, we insulate it from any challenges that the ex-spouse may have. Mm. Uh, Another thing to you know, keep in mind with divorce is that if it's a minor child involved and, and you're trying to leave your money to them, depending on your relationship with the custodial parent, then you may just be giving the money to that custodial parent effectively because they'll be the ones in charge of the minor. You know, and, and if it's an acrimonious divorce and maybe you want your kid to have this money, but you don't you know, trust your ex-spouse to do the right thing with it, that's where something like maybe a trust could come into play where you can sort of set the guidelines for how these things are passing on beyond just saying, I want to leave it to my kid because the reality of leaving it to your kid is a little more complicated than just, I'm going to give this seven-year-old this money and he's going to have it. Correct. Usually what we see in divorce agreements is, uh, especially again with wealthy families, is in the divorce agreement, it'll say that the spouse has to set up a trust for the children. It has to have a certain amount of life insurance. It has to have a certain amount of assets, etc. And the trust has to have a trustee being either the ex-spouse or someone that's pre-agreed. So there's parameters even for that situation you know, in a divorce agreement where the kids are taken care of in specific provisions there. That said, you can go beyond and above the divorce agreement and you can create trusts in addition to what's spelled out in the divorce agreement for those children. And there you could be able, you have more flexibility in terms of uh, you can have a different an independent trustee that manages those assets. And that's what usually is the case with our families. We'll, we'll do what the divorce agreement says. And if the, if the client wants to do something above and beyond, we will get more creative in situations there. So, you know, to use an outdated term, looking at DMX's family, he has a number of children born in and out of wedlock. Now, that used to shockingly be a legally relevant term. Is that, is that still the case nowadays? It's a it's a function of state law, but again, when they you know when you die in testate, uh, and you can prove that you are a, a child of the decedent, usually, I mean, you can in situations you can be actually in the same level as a, a child from a, a marriage, where that's no longer uh, the case. So the answer is that again, it's all state specific, but they're probably going in in his situation. They're probably all going to be seen as equal getting uh, equal claim to the estate. And uh, in the case of, of a man, there's also the issue of you can have children after your debt. Um, how does that sort of play into this whole thing? It's another state law issue largely, but broad strokes. You mean in terms of? After children born children. Making, yeah, I mean, I, again, they're the same situation as if you didn't know about them. They all take uh, at the same level in terms of their share. And especially when there's no spouse involved, because usually when there's a spouse involved and you die in testate, the spouse has the uh, spousal, you know, you can't completely disinherit a spouse. There's a certain minimum that the spouse has above and beyond any claims that the children have. So it, it becomes all the more important uh, in terms of planning when you are married to make sure if you want kids, if you, if you want to exclude certain kids uh, with a plan, you can do that. The only person you can't completely exclude is your spouse. 
So it becomes all the more important if you have situations like this and you want to exclude certain kids that you do it through a will or a trust or you plan ahead of time. Because otherwise, when it's, you know, intestate, they all have the same claim to the estate. Mm-hmm. And this idea of, of disinheritance, sort of purposeful uh, disinheritance, a lot of people hear that and it's sort of like a dirty word to them. They, they think of sort of disinheritance from the news. Oh, I hated my kid or we didn't get along. I, you're, you're not my child anymore. Sort of like big, splashy things. But there's any number of reasons to a, either wholly disinherit a kid or to sort of give varying degrees in your will to them. Perhaps one child is very gainfully employed and the other is not. And so the one who is not will need the money much more, whereas the one who is employed is, is fine on their own. Or, you know, maybe there's a drug addict involved. Or sometimes there's a family business and it's, you, you can't split your assets up, quote unquote, evenly because there's this business aspect that one child is very involved in. And am I going to give parts of the business to these other kids who have nothing to do with it? Is that really fair? And you end, end up with all these questions that sort of makes the idea of, oh, I just want to give everything equally to everyone, which sounds nice in theory, in practice, not often the best. And a lot of times, you know, a, a non-acrimonious disinheritance is something that's completely legit and happens and is actually a good planning structure. Absolutely. And that's an excellent point that you raise. We have found generally that families, you know, you could have, let's say, four or five children in a family. And if there's one child who's particularly successful versus the other two or three, that, you know, there's an incentive to not to give as much to that child. However, the general rule has been that families, they, they technically want to be equal uh, in terms of the amount of assets they give now, and, and you ra- raise the issue of there might be a family business and one child might be actively involved. We technically see that these families want to be equal, so they might give the business to one child and other assets of equal value to the other children. What we say is, in, in, in situations where they don't want to disinherit, that upon death, the, the child that's more well-off, if that child doesn't want to accept anything, you can do what's called, called a qualified a disclaimer of any any bequest and that way that the assets go to the remaining children so that's some that's something that we do actively but the general rule has been that parents don't want to disinherit although there have been situations where that has been the case and if that is the case we are very specific in documents to spell out that this child is not in the document because it's the intention of the father, mother, both to disinherit this child. So that way, that after death, if the child comes back and tries to sue the, the estate for, for whatever reason, trying to claim that they should get a share, it's clearly in the documents that that child was intentionally left to survive such a claim. So in situations like that, we make it, we take extra precaution in laying out in the documents that that child should not get a share for reasons X, Y, and Z. And it's important to point out, which is something you mentioned earlier, that while in most states, if not all, um, it's impossible to completely disinherit a spouse, it is absolutely possible to completely disinherit a child. Correct. Correct. Unless there's some space, state that I'm not aware of, but in exactly, general yes. cases, you, you, you can disinherit children. You are free so, to do that. When you're planning with your clients on this sort sort of stuff, are the kids in the room necessarily, or is it really just with the parents? The vast majority of times, the situation is just the parents. Uh, and a lot of times we find that parents are reluctant to let kids know what the true family wealth is. 
And then we always urge the, the family. And, you know, eventually they do they do tell them, but it's later rather than sooner. We always urge parents to have those conversations earlier, just to let kids know what the situation is and just inform them. But the general, the answer to your question is generally speaking, the parents are alone in the room when we have those conversations. Yeah, because a lot of stuff in estate planning is, is all about communication, right? And you never can tell exactly where a fight's going to come from, right? There's just so many vectors for people to get mm-hmm. bent out of shape about, especially when you're dealing with money and family and just things that people want to fight about. Um, in a plan, it's largely just impossible to insulate against possibility because you don't know what they are. But sort of having this line of communication open can sort of head a lot of that stuff off while you know the parents are still alive, they can explain their reasoning and sort of get to the bottom of things that maybe the kids don't even know is going to bother them yet. But after the parents are dead and they see the will, all of a sudden they realize, oh my God, I care about this all of a sudden. That's absolutely correct. We, we find that if you have those difficult discussions while you're alive and you find out that one child may you know, take things the wrong way, you can have those conversations and preempt any legal situations after death that can be very costly and the results can be something that the parents uh, don't want. Let me give you an example. There was one situation with a client. This was six generations of wealth. It was passed down and this particular client, he had several children. He wanted upon his death to give most of the money to charity. And a couple of the children didn't like that. They're like, wait a minute, this money was came down from ancestors. Why should you be the one to take all the funds and, and give them to charity? And so there was a conversation. We, you know, we had those conversations and, and, and a happy medium was struck. But if we didn't have those conversations, it could have gotten very contentious upon the death of mom and dad. For the reasons you just said, it's much better to have those conversations while you're alive and just to vet out all the issues, all the different, you know, there's so many different dynamics, so many different things that can go wrong in a family dynamic that you really can't predict unless you have the conversations. So, you know, thus far we've kind of focused on relationships where there's sort of that are legally defined, right? Either we're talking about a marriage where you have a marriage contract and then you get the whole bundle of rights that comes with being married, which is you know one of the most powerful contracts you can have. And you or sort of we're talking about a divorce where now you're subject to the legal document of a divorce agreement, likely, and there's some sort of parameters and legal contracts that are binding you together. What about families or, or, or partners that are not married, that are not legally bound together? Do they automatically have any rights? Uh, I, again, it depends on the state. Like, if there's a state where there's a common law marriage type of situation, where the answer there probably is yes. Or there's certain legal different doctrines where there might have been a a sort of constructive contract between the two persons that uh, so long as I live with you and I take care of you, you will give me X upon your death. Even though that's not in a formal contract, maybe there's a constructive contract. So there's different types of theories that one may use to try to get something that they would ordinarily not get, or uh, especially if they were not formal husband and wife or spouse as recognized by that, by that particular state. But technically, those are very difficult to prove. And so, you know, if you want to be, you know, marriage, marriage is one of the most tax, at least from a tax perspective, very tax efficient because upon the death, so long as you're, you know, you're both U.S. citizens, 
you could pass unlimited amount of wealth to your spouse, gift and estate tax free. That's a powerful tool uh, where that wouldn't be the case if you're not a spouse, where upon the death of the first person in the, in this, in the relationship, there could be a huge estate tax due that would otherwise be avoided. So there's a lot of legal and, not, and, and tax issues that one has to face in situations like that. Yeah, the power of marriage is something that sort of can't be understated here. And it's sort of one of the uh, most sort of overlooked aspects in my experience of sort of the, the entire uh, gay marriage conversation, right? Where a lot of, you know, whether you object to it or not, a lot of people who have objections, they're more on sort of a social slash religious sort of level. And they kind of overlook the fact that, well, just the ability to be married in terms of tax-efficient wealth transfer and being able to make healthcare decisions for each other is enormously powerful. Very, very powerful. When the, when, when the law recognizes you as married, then both at the state level and the federal level, you know, the law says you deserve, you have special rights, special tax, tax provisions that you can take advantage that can make things much more efficient. Uh, and, and that's a powerful thing in and of itself that, that we see. For example, like you can disinherit anyone except your spouse. Um, so, you know, that in and of itself is powerful and the law recognizes that. Yeah, and the reason I'm belaboring this point is because, you know, as you said earlier, when you're talking about how you have to, you know, plan in your document, you have to well define what, you know, everyone's going to get, what everyone's relationship is going to be. If you're dealing with a couple that maybe decided not to define their relationship with marriage or marriage wasn't available or whatever, as a planner, you have to attempt to, you know, if the client's intend to sort of put themselves forward as married, but not actually be married, just be partners. You then have to enter the document, sort of try to write in a version of the sort of marriage implied protections that, that you get, right? That these people normally wouldn't have, but are so valuable that you really want them. Correct. If I was faced with a situation like that with a client, for example, who was wealthy, uh, what I would suggest to that client is creating a trust while they're alive that has certain protections that gives the other person in the relationship, certain rights, certain abilities to access assets. And, and let's just say that uh, at death, if it so happened that they weren't in any longer in that relationship, that those rights could be cut off, again, depending on what the, the, the person wanted. So you can, you can, through trust, sort of create a quasi-marriage in terms of taking care of that person. It wouldn't, it, it would necessarily not, maybe not as tax efficient, but we can make it pretty tax efficient. And, you know, again, it can mimic a marriage, not exactly, but somewhat to achieve a lot of the objectives of the relationship. But that would require a lot more planning ahead of time. So now another uh, drone that I like to beat on this show is all the other documents, you know, beyond, you know, people think of wills sort of largely as a leading estate planning document. But... You know, in terms of managing a lot of where things go, do you mind just talking about sort of beneficiary designations and, and what can be done there? Again, usually uh, the will is not as important upon the death as is the trust, the revocable, what we call the revocable trust. And, and, and the reason there is what we like to do is when you have assets, a large balance sheet, we like to title everything in revocable trust. So upon the death, uh, those assets automatically pass to the trust. And the trustee manages those assets instantaneously. And it avoids the entire probate process. 
it avoids the entire process of having to inventory things where everything becomes public record like this gentleman. Uh, and, and it's timely and costly and long. All that can be affected. All that can be, excuse me, prevented through the use of revocable trusts, whether revocable or irrevocable, way ahead of time. And that, to me, is probably the more important documents to set up uh, in situations like this. In terms of like, you know, you have 401ks and pensions and life insurance there, you, you know, you can designate certain beneficiaries upon your death. So again, that avoids... By doing that, you avoid the probate process where everything becomes public record and it's subject to, to potential court claims. Whereas if you designate a beneficiary upon your death, those assets go to the beneficiary automatically by operation of law. There's really nothing that anyone can do about it. And it's a seamless, quick process. So we, we, we sit down with the client. We go over all their assets. We'd like to either title them in trust name and or those those assets like life insurance or annuities or IRAs, you know, we make sure that the designated beneficiary is someone that the, either the mother or father or the, the person that's about to die. It's, you know, it's what they want and it makes things a lot better <clears throat> and it avoids this whole probate process that can be costly and timely. Yeah, you know, you, the beneficiary designations are this great tool, right, where um, obviously it's just ease of use, right? It's, it's privacy, it's ease of use, it just right. happens. But that's only a great tool if the person who's the beneficiary is who you want it to go to. Because Correct. again, we're talking about divorce, we're talking about severance of relationships. It's entirely possible that your 401k that you started when you were 30 and you filled out you know, that, that the forms then and you made your wife or husband at the time your beneficiary as you would, you're divorced 20 years later you know, you're not, maybe you haven't thought to get to changing your 401k because that is relevant. And yet, you know, when you die, maybe your current wife or husband can't now inherit that because you never changed a beneficiary designation and it's to go into your ex-spouse. That's an excellent point. That's why when we sit down with new clients, they come on board. We go through the whole inventory of all assets that have designated beneficiaries and we make sure that the designated beneficiaries have been updated and reflect the true intentions of the person. Because for, for reasons you just said, 20 years ago, that might have been the case, but facts change, uh, objectives change, and we just want to make sure those designated beneficiaries are correct. And the only way to do it is to keep them updated and making sure that they are. And that's a process that we go through quite often with clients. And it's a very important one for reasons you just said. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank uh, John Panikidis for, for being a fantastic guest. Thanks for coming on, John. Thank you for having me again. Appreciate it. Happy holidays and happy and healthy new year to you and all your staff there, David. Absolutely. Right back at you. And for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.